Um, if you think about best practices, essentially there are none, right? It's the best practice for your organization. Um, so I always try to help these leaders really figure out well, what are you doing? What are you doing right now, right? What are your goals? What are you trying to achieve with the, you know, the appetite for the work that you have maybe with amongst your leaders um, for those who are looking to really help you in building a strong, inclusive, uh, you know, workforce too as well. Um, how can we make this specific to you and tailored to you too as well? So you're not comparing yourselves uh, to maybe what others are doing and that's stopping you from at least starting to take action too as well. Um, so I definitely understand why people uh, and why leaders, you know, ask that question. Um, maybe to even see if they're even capable enough to start taking action. Uh, but I also think it's a part of my duty too as well to really help architect a way for a leader to take action no matter where they show up to this work. Because it's the right thing to do, Robert. <laughs> um, right. Again, you know, we're, we're talking about basic human rights and values. We're not, we're not talking scary stuff here. We're, we're talking about basic rights. Uh, and the vast majority of people grew up with these values uh, and have them baked into their hearts and minds. So, so let's start with this is an important investment because it's the right thing to do for your people. Um, but second, plenty of research out there that says this it works. Right. Countless studies show the impact that diverse teams have on the bottom line, on performance uh, and, and generally on the experience people have at work. So we know diversity works. Um, third, because of the war for talent that's happening, and sometimes I don't like that analogy of, of the war, but I, but I think it is truly tougher right now than ever to get the right or the best people uh, and to keep them. Uh, with inside your organization. And few things are more costly to a business than losing employees or even losing the best candidates when you're, when you're still in the recruiting or acquisition phase. Um, and we have data that shows the direct impact that DEIB has on retention and on your ability to go higher. Um, there is in fact nothing more correlated, not pay, not how nice your manager is, not whether they've got a pool table at work or any of that stuff, right? None of it None of that is more directly correlated uh, than how somebody feels. Do they belong? Are they being heard and included? And is their workplace fair? Um, so, so we want to help people win that that war for talent, so to speak. And we know this is this is one of the key ways to do it. Uh, and believe me, the, the younger generations, but uh, below my generation, uh, are already starting. These they're they're already dominating the workforce, and they're certainly gonna for the next couple of decades. Um, they're different. They're different than some of us, you know, maybe older older folks on the conversation here. Um, they're frankly no longer willing to just go to work for someone for that paycheck uh, or stay at a, you know, a bad job or a mediocre job uh, out of blind loyalty or, or a false sense of security. Um, no, they, they want to work places that have a purpose and that have a mission and that they're behind and they feel that purpose in their work. Uh, and, and frankly, they also want to buy from these companies. So it's not even only just about... Uh, you know, the, the the talent and employees within a company, like people are making their, their purchasing decisions, their buying decisions. They want to understand that company I'm about to give my money to, what do they stand for? Uh, and, and what's their workforce look like? Uh, so, so, you know, mission-driven companies that, you know, treat their employees with respect and fairness and dignity, that's who's going to win, right? And that's where the younger generations are putting their time, their energy, and also their dollars. Um, so that's what this is all about. And we're here at Matheson to help companies get to that place faster.
Figure out what it is. Why is there a gap there? What's missing in my life? What needs to take place? And I think self-reflection has to become a regular part of your daily activities, especially right now. We're in the new year, the beginning of the new year. It has to be self-inventory. I tell people to take inventory regularly. If you're not taking an inventory on a weekly, daily, monthly basis, you're probably missing something. And there are some gaps in your life that are not getting addressed or they're not getting sealed. And I think that when we allow things to continue without evaluating them, the gaps get bigger, right? So then now it becomes something that you must deal with and you're freaking out, you're stressed out. And you're like, oh my gosh, if I had just dealt with this in the beginning when it was like this and I could have sealed it, then I wouldn't be dealing with this right now. And this is why I think sealing it versus filling it is important because sometimes you can fill stuff. Like you're like, oh, I got time today. Let me fill it with something to do. People are like, oh, I ain't got nothing to do. Let me fill it. Like, no, let's operate in a spirit of excellence. What do I need to do that can help me in the long run? Something that my life will thank me for tomorrow today. Um, allyship is interesting <laughs> because I think it depends on the context you're in and how you can be an ally. There's so many things that are said about it. If you're an ally, you don't get to give yourself the title. Someone else says, you are my ally, right? Some people will say, well, I don't want you to be my ally. I want you to be right next to me, like in the battle right next to me instead of just being off the side. And so sometimes people are looking for like a checklist of like, what can I do? What can I prove? Instead of just changing, instead of just like it's easy. It's not easy. But instead of focusing on a perspective shift, where it's like, let me change the lens in which I see people, um, how I'm respecting people, how I'm valuing everybody. And in that context, I can be a better ally because I'm just seeing things differently. And I think that's the better approach to it. Instead of saying, I did this, I did this, I did this as a checklist, which we know doesn't work the best. And that's personal. And so you need to, the companies need to make sure that their employees trust them with that data, what are you using it for? If you're just doing it to collect and report and not taking action, then probably you're not going to see a high take up. Um, and so I think that, you know, self-ID, while it has been around for a while, it has really picked up steam over the past probably five to 10 years. And I think we're just in that evolutionary cycle of employees feeling comfortable to report. Um, and so I think it's about, so, so when I think about how do you build trust with your employees about voluntary self-ID, it's being upfront about what you're gonna use the data for so that people know, if I give you this piece of information, how are you going to help? How, this, how is this going to help? But then also you have to make sure that people understand that this is, this is, being used for a positive direction, right? We're not using this to, you know, oh, we know somebody is X, Y, Z, and so we're going to let them go, right? Like that's, that's not what it should be used for um, and could get you in a lot of legal trouble anyway, if you did. Um, and then you need to show that you're actually taking action, right? So it's about reporting on those numbers. It's about identifying where the gaps are and then what are the actions that you're going to take and then following up on the success or not success of those actions, right? Like we can have all these great goals, but if we don't tell people how we're doing, um, then it's just, it's a nice, you know, statement on a website somewhere, right? So 
you have to you have to be accountable to the information that you're asking employees uh, to provide and and give them the opportunity to trust you. Don't waste your years stressing over things you can't control. The only thing you have control over are your own actions and your behaviors. You can't control other people. And the minute that you try to do that, it's a problem, right? All we can do is guide and lead and model. Guide, lead, model. Guide, lead, model. And if people catch on, great. If they don't, they'll fall off eventually. And that's okay, because they'll find somebody that they can be guided and led and that they'll want to follow. You know, it's the process of leadership evolution. When I say I'm going to do something, I do it. I think so when the communication also comes with accountability. I know that people always believe like, you know, like, oh, well, knowledge is power. Well, knowledge is not. Knowledge is not power. What power is actively using it. So it's the activations. So when you're communicating and you're saying, hey, I'm going to do this and you have that knowledge and then you do it because you actually power, people are going to trust you. For me, I always tell people quick wins is one of those words. We, we hear so much in business, don't we? Like, oh, I want a quick win here. What's a quick fix for this? Right. And for me, I think all the time, it's like, well, there can never really be a quick fix. Quick fix. I can give you some quick fixes to make your marketing more accessible, or I can, um, I'll give you some of those throughout this here uh, in a moment. But for me, I always think with disability, the quickest fix that anybody can do is to forget this quick fix because it's all about that mindset. It's changing that mindset, flipping that narrative, which is we should hire for pity. We should hire because it's the right thing to do. Well, no, hiring disabled people, yes, there's an element of being right. It is the right thing to do. You want to hire the right people for the job, but a person with disability, they're bringing a whole range of skills that potentially somebody else won't have. You know, if I think of myself, if I'm going somewhere, so if I'm going from A to B, I have to plan that like a military operation. I have to make sure I can get there, there's accessible support, like there's support there, there's accessible transport for me. Because, you know, if it's sunny, and this is going to sound so silly, but if it's sunny, I'm like a vampire. I can't navigate in the sun, it's way too bright. <laughs> I got on the wrong bus or train so many times thinking it's the right one. I've asked for help and people just don't really give that support. So for me, I have to plan mm. things like military operation. That's the same for any person. If it's somebody who's a wheelchair user, they need to make sure they can get down and lifts. The lift's going to work because most buildings mm. will have a lift, but they won't be in service or they don't have accessible entrances. So we plan things. So that, pro that planning is an additional skill. Problem solving. We problem solve every day in our lives. If you're a person with lived experience or disability or neurodivergence, there is barriers that we have find ways to overcome in our personal lives, not just you know personal problems, but you know, challenges online. Over 97% of the world's top um, 1 million websites aren't accessible, but yet we found a way to make it accessible for those who need to. Yeah, stop trying to fit in. <laughs> I think that everything that makes you different is exactly the thing that actually makes you even more valuable to the organization. I think about that process of talking about the things that make me who I am and how sometimes that can make other people feel uncomfortable. And that piece, that uncomfortability that someone else feels, that's not your problem. But if you don't address it and you don't empower your difference, as I like to call it, then it is your problem ultimately because that person won't want to work with you. They're not going to feel comfortable and then they're going to pass you over for a leadership opportunity. At some point, you have to realize that A, personally, you can't care. And then B, you also have to figure out a way to make them care. And how you make them care is by sharing the empowering information that you're about to share with them. Because the reality of the situation is, is that they show up 
in some of the most covert ways that we don't even realize it because we think of like the overt ways our biases show up, right? That maybe it's kind of a way of, of a man being like, I don't think a woman could do this job. And that's like the overt way that we think of it. We don't think of it the covert way of like, well, I know this person just had a baby. I just don't know if they could come back and do their job the right way. That's a covert way. Or it might be the way of saying, you know, this person, all they need is X, Y tool to do their job well. And it might be like, well, I know that they're the best candidate. Absolutely. I think the, the first thing you have to do to be able to make anything inclusive, if you're, we are, if you are a part of a marginalized community, you're more than likely, the DEI, the DEI leader is already within you. I would say that mm. the first thing you have to do is you have to, you have to listen. You know, you have to be willing to listen. You also have to be willing to tell either your story or to move impact by being able to build the allyship. I mean, no one knows what it's like to walk in the shoes of a black woman or a black man or an Asian American or a person that identifies as LGBTQ. Like there's so many shoes that we've never had an opportunity to walk into, but what we can do is we can listen. And when you listen, you hopefully listen with a with an open mind and you're able to tell those stories. One is around, I guess, bias training and implementation. I think that there's a lot of training that happens to educate people around bias, to call out kind of what it is, how you can spot it so that people have a higher level of awareness. But what, where I, and what I think is also an opportunity though that we don't maybe see as much is the implementation and accountability side of that. And so you can teach people about it, but then how are you ensuring that it's being implemented? I have this series of workshops that I call kind of the foundation, right? They're experiential learning processes that people go through to really start to unpack, not just what this means for the organization, but what does it mean for me? How do I show up in this space? And so that can be anything from like, what are the basics of diversity, equity, and inclusion? and talking about the layers of who we are as individuals and how we show up in the workplace and how some aspects of us are more important to us, but others may never see that, right? So we talk about the iceberg and you may see me as a black woman, but you may not see that I'm an immigrant to this country, right? You don't hear that in my, at my accent or you don't hear that um, I'm a, a bonus mom to two boys with autism. You don't see that every day, but that's how I show up. And so those are the lenses that I see the world. And so once you start to unpack, how do I show up as an individual in this workplace? What's important to me? What's not important to me? Or what do I even hide from people or hide from myself, right? I don't even realize that it's something that's important to me. So we start kind of there and start to unpack that, go into inclusive communication and, <clears throat> Some of that is a lot of people we hear will talk about, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing or I don't want to do the wrong thing. Okay, let's unpack what that is. What are you trying to communicate? 
So, you know, we go through that. We talk about microaggressions. We talk about identities. We talk about gen, um, generational differences, because especially now in this pandemic and as folks wanting, you got to go back into the office. Folks are going back into the office for different reasons, right? And so are we going in because we really want to be there? Are we going in because we need to check and make sure people are doing their jobs? So that's kind of what this experiential learning and it allows organizations to have conversations about this stuff in ways that they probably haven't, right? How many times have you sat down with your CEO to talk about generational differences and how that impacts how people show up and how they communicate and how teams get put together or even how you are um, creating products for your customers and clients, right? Are the folks that are on that team representative of your customer base, but generationally, racially, you know, with disabilities, all of that. So that's kind of what those sessions are. It allows organizations to unpack what this looks like for them and then start going into the work of, okay, where do we now need to go from here? Before we can change something, we have to know that it exists. And the best way to go about knowing that something exists is to become aware of it, how negativity speaks in your life. It may come in a way that, well, that's not negative. That's just reality. You know, I'm just being realistic. Um, but if it's something that limits you from achieving whatever you are setting out to achieve, or it limits you in your thinking or in your doing or in your connecting, then that's a limitation that I would label as negative. So those type, any type of limitation that you place on yourself, I, I call that negative self-talk. Um, and so in that we have to be aware of how negativity speaks in our lives and understand that awareness is not just a linear practice. It's constant um, tuning in to how we talk to ourselves, the stories and beliefs we carry that are ours, but also the ones that are not ours. Like I mentioned previously, um, we need that awareness. Um, that's where it starts. The second thing that I would say is um, the world is going to continue to turn. So to navigate any practice, we have to be aware um, we have to understand that the things that we were taught as a people or as an individual, as children, to not trust our feelings, to suppress um, our emotions or downright ignore them. Um, we were taught to quiet our curiosities, to not rock the boat. Um, I don't know if you would remember any of these phrases. Some of these might date me a little bit. Um, but some of the things that I've been told is like, you're getting too big for your britches or, um, stop asking so many questions, do it because I said, so, um, sit down and be quiet, pay attention, um, do what I say, not as I do all of these things. Um, there's so many contra contradictions within themselves, but at the same times, what happens is that we begin to question ourselves. And we never stopped. So to navigate a resilience practice, we have to unlearn our programming. And I'm not blaming our parents because our parents did the best that they could with what they knew. But we're adults now, right? So we have the ability to unlearn our programming, get to know ourselves, and to put in the practices that help us achieve what we need and want to achieve with our lives. Um, you know, to me, the, the, the biggest success matrix 
is when people ask your opinion. You know, they say, mm. uh, they, they say, well, look, we are going to do a self IDF or any other categories we have proposed. Do you mind having a look? Or, you know, we are launching this new product. We don't know if it's going to be offensive to the community. Would you mind looking in your network at some time who could, who could give feedback? Or even I love when people reach out to me and say, oh, I'm applying for that job. Do you know someone who is LGBT in the company that could tell me a little more about what is the, the climate for LGBTQ plus employees? I think the, you know, being uh, uh, ultimately, you know, now I'm pretty old, I'm, 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 I'm 44. And, you know, even though I don't always, practice, <laughs> even though I don't always practice it in my day-to-day -day life, I am convinced that a life well-lived is a life of service to others. And, you know, I, I didn't think like that at all in my 20s and early 30s. But now I'm, I'm convinced that, first of all, you know, if you do place other people's need as, as a priority in your life, it tends to pay back for you, you know. And so um, I love it when people ask me for uh, my opinion or ask me for uh, 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 support because it means that they, they see me as being uh relevant in that space you know and to me that's a huge uh indicator of success by me showing up fully as my whole self i free someone else to do the same and when they finally get the courage to do it then they free someone else to do the same and the next thing you know we're all free and isn't that the purpose to be free to be us the real question is who's not in the room right when we go into spaces, do we scan the room and then ask the question, who's not here? Who's not here that should be here because we don't have that representation? Oftentimes we walk into a room and we just look at who's there. And then we, we go down the list, we check off, oh, Robert's here, Juliana's here, Mike is here, right? But starting to ask ourselves, who's not present? Who's not in the room? Um, thinking about from a company or organizational perspective, who are we leaving out? What constituency isn't at the table? What client base have we not thought about or reached out to? That is what real inclusion looks like. But a real quick measurement that leaders can use on their small teams or with the people that they work directly with is writing down the last time somebody raised their hand around you, writing down the last time somebody answered or asked a question when you said, are there any questions? Writing down the last time somebody um, sent you an email just to say, hey, can we chat? Like somebody initiating the chat instead of you as a leader initiating that chat. And then writing down the demographics of the people that are doing that most often. Is it always white people? Is it always cis people? Is it always the extroverted person that always raises their hand? These are the people that already feel psychologically safe there, which means people who don't feel those demographics probably don't.